Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, we'll prepare for our study this morning. And as you're turning to Luke 16, we continue our study of the parables today. I've got some very exciting news to share with you. If you come next week, we have a special guest who will be with us. Just as a reminder to you, those of you who may not know, um, I am currently in the process of completing my doctorate. And when I say completing, that is a very relative term. (laughs) I'm midway through, halfway through uh, the, the doctorate that I'm working on right now. Part of the requirements of that program require particular points along the year when I'm on campus for seminars every day for a period, extended period of time. Over the next three weeks, beginning tomorrow, I'm on campus in Atlanta uh, for our summer series, our summer seminar uh, for three weeks in a row uh, each day. Uh, And I will be here each Sunday. So next Sunday, I'll be here worshiping with you, leading in worship. But because of the rigor and the requirements of the week, I will not be preparing a sermon. So many of you remember last year, during this time last summer, is when I had my friend Greg Ellison come and share sermons each of those three weeks. Uh, This year, I have another friend who will be joining us, Dr. Bill Scheel. Dr. Bill Scheel is an old friend of mine. We were pastors together in Tennessee, and next week I'll give you a fuller and more exciting introduction to him. But I will tell you this, right now he is the president of Northern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is an outstanding scholar, writer, and an exceptional preacher, exceptional preacher. And you will not want to miss his sermons. In fact, next week, I've given him an assigned uh, text. I said, Bill, would you come and, and, and preach? I explained the whole thing. And I said, now, here's the caveat. Can I give you an assignment? He said, absolutely. I said, I want you to preach part of our parables series. In fact, I want you to preach the prodigal son parable, the parable of the prodigal. But I want you to preach it three times in a row. I want you to do a mini-series called Lost and Found. Three Sundays in a row, he will take the same passage and we'll talk about the prodigal experience from both the perspective of the son, the older brother, and the father. And I believe by the time we're done, we may find our own places where we are lost along the way and places where we are by God's grace found. So you will not want to miss starting next week. If you miss any Sunday during the summers, don't miss those. Miss me. You got me the rest of the year. But come and be a part of an exciting mini-series in the parables starting next week. For today, our parable comes from Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. Hear these words. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple 
and fine linen and who feast sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. He, he said, then Father, I beg you, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so they will not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Yeah, yeah. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The curiously written and provocatively proclaimed word of the living God. May God add a blessing to the hearing and to the doing of it. Let's pray together. Lord, by your spirit, we pray that you would enable us to truly hear and to truly see this message of hope. In your name we pray, amen. Parables are like onions. They are. Onions have many layers, and you can peel off one layer of onion at a time. Glenn, I'll get that up before tonight. So, <laughs> each layer revealing a new sweetness, a new taste, a new season. Parables are that way, and depending on where we happen to find ourselves when we gather around a parable, depending on what experiences we've brought with us into this room, depending on what we've gone through this past week or what we're going through in the week ahead, it becomes a kind of lens through which we read these parables. In other words, there are many layers in which depending on where we are, 
It shapes what kind of truth we hear from the parable. That's what makes Scripture sacred. No matter how many times you go to it, and no matter how many ways you angle it, no matter how many ways you come and approach this text, depending on where you are that particular day, you will hear truth with a different set of ears each time. It has many layers, right? The first time I preached from this parable was 28 years ago. I was 16 years old, and I was asked to, to preach to my youth group. I said, yes, you got it. And for 30 minutes, I waxed eloquent with absolute certainty and confidence about what I thought this parable was all about. I thought it was about heaven and hell. And so the title of my sermon, <laughs> the title of my sermon was Five Things You Can Do While Burning in Hell. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, get that off the screen. That's just, wow. I mean, it was bad. It was a bad sermon, okay? I know you've never heard one of those here, right? But it was a bad sermon. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that's what it was all about. Now, I, in fact, that's where I was when I came to the onion. That's the layer I saw at the time. I thought this parable was somehow a visitor's guide to the afterlife. And so I went on and on about all the things that you can do while you are in hell. But there is another layer to this. In fact, I peeled back another layer of this onion, this parable, back just a few years ago when I began to visit other places on the planet where there really are sore-ridden beggars at the gates of rich men. This morning, as I peeled back even another layer of this parable, I'm mindful, I'm thinking, about villages where we've been in Ethiopia. I'm thinking about the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. I'm thinking, in fact, I'm thinking about Uganda, Kep. You just got back from Uganda. I'm thinking about that 200-yard buffer between Kenya and Uganda where you go through security and there's a, on the door, on the window of our door, knocking with the nubs that remained from their hands, lepers. And when I, Think about those experiences, each layer of the onion being peeled back. I, re I remember that Luke tells his version of the Jesus story with the poor in mind. Jesus tells all these stories, and yet Luke makes sure that we know the stories that demonstrate God's curious solidarity with the people who suffer with those who are in the margins, with those who are impoverished. And all through Luke's gospel, there is this unmistakable alliance that God has with the poor. And there is this, this clarion call that Luke issues to all the would-be followers of Jesus that if this is where God is and you want to be with God, you have to get pretty intimate with your compassion for the poor. You don't even have to read far into this text or into this book called the book, the Gospel of Luke. You go into the first chapter and remember that moment when the angel has, has, has spoken to Mary and has said to Mary, you are going to give birth 
to the divine. For the world is pregnant with something that's about to erupt with hope. A new thing is about to be born, and it starts in you. And remember, she sings. She breaks out in song. Do you remember this? And we call it the Magnificat, and it's a beautiful song. But the trouble is we sometimes soften the edges of the song and we make it a kind of lullaby. As if Mary sings this sweet lullaby, happy that she's going to give birth to the Son of God. But it's not a lullaby. It's a protest song celebrating the fact that God is about to topple over the empires of this world so that a new kingdom can be born, not made with hands. This is how she put it. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. He has scattered the proud, and he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. In Luke, there is a solidarity between God and the poor. You don't even have to read three or four more chapters. In chapter 4, this baby who was born and grows up preaches his first sermon at his hometown in Nazareth. And his sermon was much better than my first sermon. And he preaches these words about why he is here and what his whole purpose is. He stands up and Luke makes sure that we understand that Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke, there is an unmistakable passion for those in poverty. And we don't have to read far into the parable that we have this morning. Even as the parable begins and introductions are made to both the rich man and Lazarus, we get some clues. They're short introductions, but we get some clues that give us symbolic power to understand what Luke is up to in telling us this particular story. It begins this way. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, although it's a brief commentary, it's a brief verse, so much is packed into that description of this one character in the parable. A rich man dressed in purple. In the first century, those who dressed in purple were those who had the means to purchase purple because purple was not common. You you know, linens and fabrics that were purple were rare, and here's why. To create the dye for purple, it required a particular kind of of dye that was harvested from a particular kind of fish oil, from a particular kind of fish in a particular region of the sea. And so supply and demand, and only those who could purchase that kind of costly ink or costly dye, wore purple. It was a symbol of their status. And this man was layered in symbol. Beneath the purple, purple layers of white linen. And I want you to get this image of one who was well insulated. Can we use that word? 
covered in purple, but beneath that, covered in white linen. White linen, purple. And beyond that, we know a table spread with all kinds of food, well-fed, well-insulated. And beyond that, a gate, well-protected, well-secured. And that's what we know about the first character. The second character is described this way. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, longed to satisfy the hunger with whatever fell from the rich man's table. Even dogs would come and lick his sores. Dogs that symbolized the uncleanliness of the world. It got to the very bottom of the human experience and he's lying there and what's most curious about his introduction to me is that he even has a name at all do you know that Lazarus in this story is the only character out of all the parables of Jesus to receive a name no other name is given to any of the characters in any of the parables of our Lord the prodigal son was not given a name his older brother was not given a name. His father was not given a name. You would think that the sower who went out to sow would be given a name. Or maybe that wonderful and merciful vineyard keeper who paid all the workers equally at the end of their day, even though they didn't work the same. You would think he would get a name, but none of them. Of all those nameless characters in all these powerful parables, the one to receive a name in Luke, remember, is the guy who's lying on the ground, leaning up against the gate of the rich man's house. And his name is Lazarus, which is curious to me because the name literally translated means God helps. God helps. And Luke is up to something by showing us that in this moment of great contrast, one of them receives the name, and his very name, his very identity, his very existence is all about God helps. It's very different than our American narrative. We build a country on the capacity to help ourselves, to lift ourselves up by the bootstraps, rugged individualism, right? That's how you build a nation. It's just not how you live in the kingdom. Do you remember Ben Franklin? In poor Richard's almanac, he said, here's the key. God helps those who what? Who help themselves. Okay, that'll work for a little while. The trouble is nothing could be more opposite than the truth of this gospel because God doesn't help those who can help themselves. God helps those who have no possibility of helping themselves. Your name is Lazarus. You don't even have an identity, so I will give you identity, and it will involve my own name. God helps. So both men in this parable have something to say to us today. But Luke is trying to make sure you and I understand that there is an unmistakable solidarity between God and the poor, and if we want to know God, Get to know the poor. I love what James Forbes said about it. In fact, James Forbes said, look, if you pay attention to the Gospels, you cannot miss the fact that God has an affinity for lifting up those who are at the bottom. But if you pay attention to Luke, James Forbes says, we can't even get into heaven without a reference letter from the poor. Knock, knock. 
can I come in? Do you have your reference letter? Have you known any poor and have you given drink to the thirsty, food to the hungry? This is Matthew, right? Have you welcomed the stranger? Have you visited the sick and the oppressed, the imprisoned? Luke says, hey, this is where God abides. So there are layers upon layers of, uh, of meaning to all these parables, and maybe at some level it's about heaven and hell. Maybe at some level it's about economic justice for the oppressed and marginalized. We could peel onions all day long, can't we? Then we're going to start crying, though, because... But I'm married to a chef, and you know what she's told me? There's more than one way to get to the heart of an onion. It doesn't take so long if you just... Cut it down to the heart. I probably cut that wrong, babe, but you'll forgive me. If we want to get to the heart of it, we cut right to the center. This parable has a center. And I want to suggest to you this morning that at the heart of this parable, there is one phrase. One phrase that I believe carries the freight of this whole truth, one phrase that if we can unpack it, will say something to every soul tuned in to this moment. Because see, both of these men die. And one is carried to Abraham and one is gone to Hades, it's described. One is in Hades and one is in paradise. And it's important, by the way, to not make assumptions about what the text doesn't say. Here's what we know. The text says the rich man went to Hades and the poor man went to the bosom of Abraham in paradise. We don't know why they did. The, the text doesn't say that the, the rich man went to Hades because he was rich. And it doesn't say the poor man went to uh, paradise because he was poor. There is nothing inherently good or bad about affluence or poverty. It's what we do with what God has given us. So I'm kind of grateful that the parable itself leaves it open and we, we don't know why each arrives in the place where they have arrived because that leaves me room to wonder where I fit in this parable, right? So one dies, goes to paradise. One dies, goes to Hades. And we're told that the rich man, seeing across this great expanse, notices Abraham and notices beside him Lazarus. And he calls out to Abraham and he issues an order. Abraham, send Lazarus so he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. He, even in a place of great anguish and torment, thinks he's calling the shots. And maybe at no other, maybe one of the skins of this onion is that somewhere along the way, even we who call some shots in this world need to recognize there's coming a day when you don't call the shots anymore. Send Lazarus so he can dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. And then a heart-wrenching response from Abraham. It's not a response of condemnation. It's not a response of judgment or anger. It's a response of a broken-hearted father. And Abraham says, oh, child. Remember that during your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner received evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to here. And tucked into that verse, tucked into the middle of that verse is the phrase I'm talking about, the phrase that makes all the difference. A great chasm has been fixed. 
And I wonder if for just a moment more, we might be able to talk about the chasms that are fixed between us. Because never in my 44, almost 45 years of living can I remember a time when the chasms that are between people have ever been as deep or as wide or as seemingly unbridgeable as they are right now. In every possible way that we can share life and do life and be with one another in beautiful community, we breach it. We violate it. We stomp all over the vision of Eden, the shared life of beauty and grace and wholeness and shalom because of the chasms that are fixed between us politically, religiously, economically, racially. In fact, there are political chasms between political parties right now, and the gulf is so wide you can't see to the other side with binoculars, with a telescope, we are so far apart from one another. And to prove my point, all I would have to do this morning is name one of the two presidential candidates out loud. I can name his name or her name. And, and re- depending on whose name I were to speak, there would be those of us in this room for whom it would arouse a raw emotional response. Sometimes vitriol and anger and seething, loathing because we are absolutely convinced that this one, he or her, represents everything that's wrong with that side of the chasm. They represent everything that is opposite of what I am and who I am and what I believe. Therefore, there is this chasm that remains between us to the point that it's disrupting relationships Just think about Thanksgiving dinner this year. (laughs) Come on. I'm talking about my family, your family. All you got to do is mention the name of somebody and the other person. And it begins to limit what you can talk about with each other. And when you begin to put limitations on human intimacy and, and relationship, the chasm has become fixed. And not just in politics, in religion. Here's my biggest frustration. See, see, I, I, I have my vocation and calling in religion. We are religious people. And yet, you know what we do? With an unexamined acquiescence, we allow those who are on the television screens or on our computer screens to script a narrative that we then play out and adopt as truth about what other religions are and what they aren't and what they represent and what their tenets are. And yet we who are the religious among us in an unexamined and unchecked way have acquiesced. We live in a world of dualistic extremes. It's either this or that, either him or her, us or them, black or white. And for as long as you and I in an unexamined way, acquiesce to the dualism of our age, we will be torn apart. We will be undone for as long as we allow ourselves to be sucked into this chasm-cultivating world. Politics, 
religion, race. Oh my gosh. I have a friend in town who has a business. He's Persian. And he is of the Baha'i faith. Baha'i, I like to say, is like the CBF of the Muslim world. You know, kind of progressive, open-minded. They're, they're welcoming. You know, there's a sense. And he is a friend of mine. And I, I love him. And, and he loves me and my family. And he told me just two weeks ago that someone came in and, and said to him, every time I look at you, I think about ISIS. He said that because I asked him why he shaved his beard. I can't wear this beard around here. The person who told him that was a pastor. There are chasms being fixed. And if this story tells us anything, this story tells us that the chasms that get fixed in eternity, they don't get fixed in eternity. They get fixed right here and now. The truth of this parable is that the rich man and Lazarus, the, the chasm between the two of them, it didn't get started when both of them died. It began when both of them were alive. How many times did the rich man see him at the gate and, and give him no scraps? Didn't get to know his name? How many times did they see one another and yet there was this gate? Beloved, chasms get fixed in this world and they last forever. But the truth is chasms don't start as chasms. Chasms start as gates. Because in the parable, there's this gate between the two characters. A gate represents anything that keeps you at an arm's distance from someone else. Anything that prevents you from loving freely and fully is a gate. And there are political gates and religious gates and racial gates. There are all kinds of gates. There are even emotional gates. Can I just say something about that for a moment? That sometimes we throw up a gate with those who love us emotionally and nobody can get past the gate. Like Harold. Harold lived the last part of his life in a nursing home. And he lived at a place where most of his neighbors in the nursing home were, were vexed by, tormented by um, the frustration of losing part of their memory. You know, they would not forget some of the simplest details. Um, not big things, but, you know, simple things. They would begin to... to to lose their memory, and many of them were tormented by that truth that that was happening to them, but not Harold. Harold was not tormented by the loss of memory. Harold was tormented by a vivid memory of an ongoing argument that he had had with his wife for 60 years. For 60 years before she died, from the earliest time right after they married, she'd say, Harold, I need you to tell me that you love me. Oh, you know I do. You know I do. Don't I, don't I show it? Don't I work hard and give you everything? Have you ever lacked anything? You've got everything you need, right? I've demonstrated. That's, that's how I do that. Yes, but Harold, I need you to say it. I need to hear you say I love you. That's not my way. That's not my way. That's not how I, that's not how I work. It's not how I do it. But you ought to know by now that I love you. A week before she died, she had a, a massive stroke and 
She was in the ICU. Harold spent every day in that last week of her life saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. But it was too late. The chasm had been fixed. Do you know that Tom Long says that in Luke's gospel, that's how the gospel is presented. That's how the kingdom is presented as a window that opens up for a while and there's opportunity. (laughs) There's a chance to remove the gate. There's a chance to connect. But then there comes a moment when the window closes and the chasm is fixed. I think about a song from a few years ago by Mike and the Mechanics. Anybody remember that band? Yeah. Called The Living Years. In the third verse of that, he testifies by saying, I wasn't there that morning when my father passed away. I didn't get to tell him all the things I had to say. I think I caught his spirit later that same year. I'm sure I heard his echo in my baby's newborn tears. I just wish I could have told him in the living years. And then he proclaims with good news, say it loud, say it clear. You can listen as well as you hear. It's too late when we die to admit we don't see eye to eye the chasms of eternity don't get created in eternity they get created now by the refusal on our part to remove the gates that separate us can I ask you to sincerely in a moment of reflection ask yourself what are the gates that have been put up between you and someone else What are the gates that have been put up between you and a bunch of someone else's? Because whatever gate is not removed begins to fix in the earth around you a fissure that becomes a chasm. And the chasm ultimately cannot be bridged. But you and I ought to know better. You and I are here because there was this once great chasm that was bridged for us. If there's anybody on the planet who ought to know something about stepping across chasms, it's those whose lives have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Because the great gulf that separated us from holiness, the great gulf that separated us from God was closed by the love of God through Jesus Christ. Ephesians, Ephesians puts it this way. In Ephesians, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. See, there is something in the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has something to do with dismantling things that separate us, not building things that separate us, putting gates between you and the one who harmed you, the one who offended you. There is in Christ this call to remove the gates before they crack and in fissured earth fix chasms. 
in 2 Corinthians, I think it can't be said any more beautifully than this. So, if anyone is in Christ, and that's you, that's me, there is a new creation. There's a new way to exist. There's a new way to do this whole thing. Everything old has passed away. The old mindset, the old heart, the old approach to one another, the old definitions about who is us and who is them and what is black and what is white. Old things have passed away. See, everything has become new. But then here's the key verse. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Can I break that down by simply saying this? You and I, because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. The chasm has been closed. But it's not just so that you and I can bridge the chasm that used to be. The text says we have been reconciled, but we have been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means it's up to us to show the world how to remove gates, how to tear down the partitions that divide us from one another. Chasms are not fixed by building a bridge. Chasms are fixed by the debris of gates that we've torn down from one another's lives. We fill chasms with forgiveness. We fill chasms with the ministry of reconciliation. Now that's terribly good news if we receive it. After all, this world, which is on a straight course to hell itself, is looking for an example on how to bridge the gap. And are we not the peacemakers? Are we not those who are to demonstrate what it looks like to be reconciled and to reconcile? And we can't do that and at the same time polish up our gate of separation. Secure our division from the neighbors who don't think like us and, and the neighbors who don't look like us and the neighbors who don't vote like us. Christians bring down the walls of um, partition that separate us. It's called the kingdom of God. Now, the last point for us to consider is this. Before chasms are fixed between us, they're usually fixed within us, within the human heart. Before we fix chasms between one another, we usually fix chasms in our hearts. There is some gate in your heart. And my question, maybe a series of questions for us to consider is this. First, where within the space of your own heart are you unable to love freely and fully right now? I mean, think about the person that... Think about the people that may be on the other side of whatever gate. Where within the space of your heart are you unable to fully and freely love to the point that when you meet the maker, and he said, did you love fully and freely? Will you be able to say yes unabashedly? There was no one I did not love. Second question, what gate needs to be removed? Third question, 
What chasm needs to be filled? Now, as we move into a time of prayer and into a time of commitment, I want to offer this. I'm going to say a prayer and close up our thoughts for the moment. But then we're going to move right into a time of singing where you have the opportunity to come and give your life to Christ for the first time, yield yourself before the the power of God's love. Or maybe having walked with Christ, you'll be able to come and say, hey, I am a Christian and I want to make my walk alongside you here as a church body. You come and join the church. But it may be that today, during this time of singing and praying, You need to come forward and at the prayer rail here, lay a burden down. It may be that you need to bring the portions of whatever fence, whatever um, partition, whatever gate has been erected in your life and lay it down and allow Christ to reconcile you within so that we can live up to our call as ministers of reconciliation in this world. Let's bow together. God, these are, these are truths of potential transformation for us. Will you forgive us for so quickly forgetting what it took to bridge the chasm to get to us? Will you forgive us? And will you show us someone that you have placed at our gate who we are called to love And will you empower us, equip us in this very moment through your spirit to to learn how to dismantle whatever separation has been erected so that the gate doesn't cause a fissure which grows to a chasm. Move in the hearts of your people right now and we will respond in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.